We are starting this series called Beyond because we need to look beyond just the holidays because we do have a whole year ahead, but we also need to look beyond our successes, beyond our failures, and really beyond what God may have had, not what we might have in store, but to look at what God has in store. So to do that, um, rather than tell you a really great story that will cause you to listen, I'd like to ask you to ponder a couple questions with me. Like, how were your holidays really? I had two people call two days before Christmas and two days after Christmas with people that were about to pass away. And that encapsulates a little bit of my holiday. There were these moments of joy, these moments of excitement, and yet at the same time there were these moments that were just hard and filled with tough things and filled with loss. And and so the reality is when we look at the holidays, I think we come with hopes and dreams of the new year and we come with pain and hardship. So where did you find rest in this new year? Where will you find rest? Where will you find hope? And where we find peace? Now let's have everybody share about their highs and lows from the new year, like from the holidays, right? Hopefully no family members are here. Uh, No, we won't do that. But we are going to look at a story that at first you'll be like, I don't really get where you're going with this, or you probably could feel this way. And the reason that we're going to look at this story is because, like I said, in this series of Beyond, where I really sense God was telling us to go in this new year, was that we had to just get off of where we were at to see forward to what God might have in store for us. And see, whenever we face these things that have these high moments and these low moments, I think we're tempted to put these filters on all the bad stuff. Okay, Anytime, anybody spend a little bit of time on social media over the holidays? Like, everybody's life is great. I mean, they all had fantastic Christmases, got everything they wanted, and had no problems with their families. I'm like, I'm just a super dysfunctional person. Because we're all tempted to put filters on anything that's hard. It started way back, according to God's story, it started at the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit, and they covered up and then they hid, and then they blamed each other for it. And really, all we've done over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years is get more creative ways to avoid our pain and put a filter on it. But is that really the best way to go forward? See, I think this passage we're going to look at today from 1 Samuel offers some valuable wisdom on how we can handle our hurts and someone else's hurts. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1? And if you don't have a Bible but have a device with a little Bible app, you can use that. No one will judge you for using your phone. And let's listen to God's word because it still speaks to where we're at today. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a certain man from Amathim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tofu, son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. 
One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year, this man went up from the town, his, his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, there is some fascinating things going on in this. And so how we're going to look at it this morning is we're going to look at it through the perspective of the three people that are listed in the story. So first is this guy named Elkanah. Now, Elkanah was a man from this place that it says, uh, Ramathim, and it says where he's from, not only the place he's from, but it also says the people he's from. Now, when I started reading the Bible, I would always skip over this stuff. Number one, it was super hard to pronounce. Number two, I didn't think it mattered. In fact, though, what I'm realizing is this is exactly not what to skip over because if the Bible puts this in, there's a reason for it. See, this isn't just some physical facts about where he's from and the people he's from. It's actually hinting at a spiritual reality that Elkanah knows who he is and where he comes from. That's actually pretty huge. Sometimes we make mistakes in life because we don't know who we are or where we're from. But this man knows exactly who he is and exactly where he's from. His name in Hebrew means God creates or the Lord is creator. And in the time that this is happening, this is coming right after, 1 Samuel comes right after in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the time of the judges. So if you know God's history, or even if you don't, God's people were trapped in Egypt. They were slaves there. It was not good. They were there for 400 years. And God used this person called Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And God protected them, brought them into the land. But Joshua, Moses' successor, was the one who actually brought them into the land. And things were pretty good under Joshua. But then after Joshua died, then it was this time of, well, basically a little bit leaderless. In fact, the phrase over and over is, in the time of the judges, there was no king. And people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Which is code for, they didn't do what was right in God's eyes. And things got really, really really bad. In fact, if you want to go and read the book of Judges, you will see how certain things happen that are pretty good, and all of a sudden things come happen, and you're like, gosh, that's not so good. And then all of a sudden you start reading some more, and you're like, whoa, that is just a little bit messed up. I can't believe that's actually in the Bible. And then you read some more, and you're like, whoa, they cut someone up and put them in pieces and shipped them all over. That is just not right. And that's what has happened when people just continue to do what's right in their own eyes. And it says there's a certain man from Ramathim who does what's right in God's eyes. Year after year, he goes to the only permanent sacred place in that time in their land called the temple at Shiloh. 
Now, yes, if you, again, know your story, know your Bible, then you'll know that God commanded seven festivals that the people were to go and worship God in in the time of Moses, but they really only had to travel to the temple or the tabernacle at the time for three of them. Well, again, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So very few people were going to any temple at any point in the year. They were praying to idols. They were hiring out personal priests to protect them. It was just not good. So the fact that he just went once a year is a very, very unique thing. Not only that, he probably is a farmer in this time. And so the, temp, the, the festival that he would have gone to is the festival in the fall when you can actually get you know two or three weeks between the harvest season and the new season that you're going to prepare. And so... They would have been there for the Day of Atonement, and they would have been there for the Festival of Tabernacles. It's basically a seven-day Famous Dave's party. And I mean that because it's this big barbecue that's happening. They're giving out the best meats, and they're giving out, um, they they give the very best part to God, but then they get to share in the rest. And so seriously, seven days of feasting. Now, uh, Kara said she was trying to live healthy in the new year. One of my New Year's resolutions is to eat less healthy. Okay, so I'm going to try and do that. And, you know, if I end up five pounds heavier in, the, in December, then I want you to cheer for me. Because that's the kind of thing that is happening in the Festival of Tabernacles. It's a big big party. But it's not just a big party to thank God for all the blessings of the year. It's this big party that is trying to connect their story of these people to God's bigger story. Because the Festival of Tabernacles was this party where they celebrated that God wasn't just God, that I am who I am or I will be who I will be. God was the Lord Almighty or the God of Heaven's armies. He was the one that was strong enough to bring the people out of Egypt and then protect them in the wilderness. And so they actually set up these shelters or tabernacles, so tents and barbecue. And they would praise God that whole time and connect their story to God's story. That's what's happening in the story. That's what's happening with this thing about Elkanah handing out these portions of the meats to his family. He was just trying to be a godly man who tried to love his family. And he, why I say try is that last line we'll come to a little later about, don't I mean more to you than seven sons? So if we we're going to look at this through the stories of Elkanah, he would be this person who's godly and trying to love the people around him. So how much can you relate to this guy? where you see a lot of people around you who are trying to do godly things or you know not following God but you are trying to follow God sincerely and you see these conflicts that might be happening around you and you're not exactly sure how to respond to them but you're trying well if that's how you can relate then ask God for help and how do you I'm not that's the wrong question so is this a person you can relate to Or do you know someone near you that actually is in this situation? And how would you respond to them? So that's our first. The second person we see is Hannah. Hannah's introduced to us as the one called Hannah in verse 2. He had two wives, one called Hannah. The fact that Hannah's listed first is very likely means that he married her first. And the fact that she does not have any children is 
probably the reason that he has another wife because there was no adoption agencies at the time. And so if you wanted your family to carry on its legacy, carry on its land, and carry on its finances, then you needed to have a son with which to pass that on to. Hannah had no children. Now, Hannah's name in Hebrew means grace, like getting what you don't deserve. It's just a beautiful, beautiful name. And yet... In that time, it was a woman's chief and highest honor to be able to bring children into the world. Hannah couldn't do that. So not only was it this thing that she didn't feel like she could do, but at the same time, to add on to that, it also meant that since she couldn't produce a son, then her family, especially her husband and her, would have this financial insecurity because a son was the bank, a son was the retirement fund, and a son was the healthcare system. They were the people that would take care of you. They were the people that you would get to pass your land to. They were the people that would get to your money. And so Hannah and Elkanah do not have that financial security. And especially Hannah, because now there's a, a, another wife that did produce these children, so there is a way for that money to go on, but that will leave Hannah homeless and probably helpless. And if that's not enough, it's completely in this culture of honor and shame that they would have lived in. Since she cannot produce children, she is a disgrace to the community. So it's a little bit like Hannah is a living paradox. If her name means grace, then grace was a disgrace. So if I was to summarize Hannah, I would say she's distressed and depressed. She's not down for the count, but she's definitely those things. Now, how many of you relate to Hannah? Where sometimes you feel like you're a living paradox. Where you feel like the things that you most want to do in this life, you can't do. And you have this insecurity with the future and this insecurity with your finances and this distress and even on top of that, some rival situations that are happening around you. And how many of you know someone who would be like Hannah? You see them kind of distressed around you. You're not really sure how you can help or what you can do, but you know that they're in pain. You know that there's hardship. You know something's going on. So hold on to her. And then finally, we have Penina. Now, I know that we want to get up, I, I think we'd want to say, uh, gosh, she just seems mean, giving this cruel and personal punishment to Hannah. And yet, Hannah, or Penina, has children. And let's, and let's remember that in Psalm 127, it says that children are a heritage from the Lord. They are an offspring that are a reward from him. Like arrows in a hand of a warrior are children in the hands of one's youth. So Penina would have had this honor of bringing these children into the world, certainly. And her name just screams with sarcasm when you realize that in Hebrew, Penina is jewel. In Isaiah 49, it says that children will be like jewels in a crown for you to display. So what's Jewel's perspective in this? Because I'm just wondering if we're giving her a little bit too hard of a time. We don't know exactly what she's thinking, but based on some things that I studied, she may say something like this. 
yeah, sure, I'm Jewel, but... I'm the one who's given him financial security. I'm the one who's given my husband these sons and daughters. And what does it seem like? He doesn't even acknowledge it. He, in fact, instead of acknowledging it, even slightly, he gives all the credit to God, saying he's the creator, and I'm the one who's brought these children in. And furthermore, not only does he just acknowledge God and not acknowledge me for that, but he acknowledges this God, the one who will be who he will be, as the one who has made Hannah unable to have children. So sure, I provoke her. Sure, I try and irritate her. I want to see her erupt with emotion so that my husband will realize that she is just as evil as I am. Maybe he would love us the same, or at least a little bit more, if he saw how bad she was. But instead, all she does is cry about it. Of course, I want to provoke her. I mean, it's like I'm insulted and told I'm inadequate Every time we go to this yearly festival, every time we go, he gives the best and double to my rival. He hands out all this to my children, thanks God for it, but I can just see how much he loves her, the one who can't give him what he wants. So of course I feel inadequate. Of course I want to irritate her. but he doesn't see how much I'm hurting. Now the text does say that she's called a rival. The text does say she provokes and provokes. The text does say she irritates. Her name means Jewel. And it says that he gives this double portion to Hannah every time. And twice in the text, it says the Lord has closed her womb. Meaning the Lord is the one who has disabled her from having children. So if I were to summarize Penina, I'd say she's hurting and hostile. So how many of you can relate to Penina? You feel inadequate. Someone reminds you of it that's somewhat close to you, whether it's in your family or in your work. And the only thing you know how to do because you're so upset about it is lash out. And how many of you have someone near you that's like Penina? You see them hurting, and as much as you want to give them compassion, they act out in such hostile, mean ways that you just can't give them what they really need. See, I think that all three of these people are experiencing hurt and loss, just each in their different way. And yet, only one of them seems to be handling it in a way that God endorses or God blesses or God, or at least the writer seems to put in a better light. So just take a moment and think about how you handle your hurts the stuff you can't control, the stuff that's hard, the stuff that you'd call loss. To try and say really polite things to it, you try and ignore it, you lash out at it. See, I think the scripture told us 
some really helpful ways to do that. And I think God even created us to deal with this stuff. I mean, if you think about it, God gave us pain receptors so that we would know how to stay alive and stay healthy. Like, do you ever wonder if you, maybe, maybe I was the only one who had a mom who said, don't put your hand on the stove because you'll get burned. But like, that's like saying, don't go in the cookie jar because there's cookies in there and I'll get mad at you. You know, everybody's got to try it once, but then you burn yourself and then you realize I shouldn't do that again. But if you didn't have pain receptors, when would you realize that you shouldn't have your hand on the stove? Would you see or smell burning flesh? Sorry, that's probably a little graphic. But there's a good reason that we have pain receptors. There's a good reason that God created us in that way so that we could avoid that kind of pain. And I'm not talking about if you're being abused. I'm talking about if you're experiencing trouble, if you're experiencing loss, if you're experiencing a conflict, but not, not abuse. That's good that we have these pain receptors so we can avoid pain. But what's not good is when we always avoid pain. When we put a filter on everything and anything that might cause us pain. Like, for example, you avoid someone because you don't know what to say to them when something as hard is in their life. Or a friend texts you and asks you to hang out, and you're like, oh, I don't want to respond because I don't want to say no to them. That might hurt their feelings. Or you have a test, and you haven't studied for the test. You don't understand the material, but, you know, you don't want to go talk to the teacher because they might say, well, how much have you studied? And you don't want to answer that question. Or someone you deeply care about passes away and you don't know how to move on. See, these different levels of loss and pain can be from big things to little things, but I would say it's not our job to decide if they're big things or little things. But it is our job to figure out how we're going to handle them. And unfortunately, as I said at the beginning, we have more and more and more creative ways to put filters on the problems and the pain that we experience. I mean, think about social media and cell phones today. Like, if you use Instagram or Snapchat or I think they even do this on Facebook, um, you, have a f- you have filtering options for everything. It's like you can't even put a picture on the computer or on your phone without having the option of putting this filter on it. And what I think it's subliminally saying to us is just make it a little bit better for your life. And, and these, these devices can just distract us. It's not that they're evil. It's just that they offer this opportunity to cover up and distract. And they become so much a part of our culture that we don't even stop to think about what we're doing. So in 2012, Harvard did this research on the effects, the psychological effects of cell phones and social media. And what they did is they hooked up 300 people to brain imaging software, not all at the same time, just like one or two at a time. And they asked them questions about their social media behaviors. And what they found out from this is that people love to talk about themselves. I'm sure you're shocked, right? Like, I want to say, how much did you pay for that? But when they even offered them money to talk about someone else instead of themselves, they turned it down. Like 17 to 25% less potential money for, for you to continue to talk about yourself. And they still did. 
Because what they found out was when someone talked about themselves, it released this brain chemical in their brain called dopamine, which is like the one that senses pleasure and causes um, you to think good things. And it's like a little reward system for your brain. And let me make sure I got it. And what they found out is this is the same chemical that's released when you eat really good food. It's the same chemical that's released when you win money, gambling. It's the same chemical that's released when you smoke and when you drink and when you do drugs. Now think about that, because we put restrictions on gambling, smoking, and alcohol. But how many of us actually put restrictions on ourselves or someone else about cell phones and social media? So this 2012 Harvard study, so it's out there, you can read it. What they figured out is this is why social media and cell phones are so addictive. Because we get a little reward from our brain when we use them. And again, the reason I'm telling you this is because it's just another fancy way that we can filter out the hard things that we're dealing with. In fact, in 2014, the, social and, uh, the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology published a study where they did two studies in looking at what happens when people spend a lot of time on Facebook. Guess what they found out? I'll save you the trouble of reading the really, really dry document. The more time people spend on Facebook, the more depressed they get. Because when you compare everyone else's highlight reel to your actual life, you feel depressed. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt, a hundred years ago, said that comparison is the thief of joy. And comparison is just one more filter that we use when we're experiencing pain, hardship, and problems. When you compare what you know about yourself with what you don't know about someone else, you will always come up short. When you compare what you know about yourself, which is what we all do, with what you don't know about someone else, which again is what we do, you'll always come up short. So what can we do? Well, I think the scripture really, really makes this pretty clear. When you're experiencing hardship, we need to face it and take it. Face it meaning we need to actually deal with or face what we are seeing. Not put a filter on it. And Hannah is dealing with this. She is going to the temple. She is going before God. And she is saying, this is awful. And that takes courage. And that takes strength to not put a filter on your problems. As it says, Hannah weeps and she doesn't eat. This is not a fun moment for her, but it's a courageous moment for her. She deals with the reality that her life has at the moment. And she doesn't just face it. She actually takes it to God. If he's the one who has disabled her from having kids, then he has the power to enable something to happen. How many of us live that way? It takes strength. It takes courage. But if we do, if we face our problems, if we take those to God, then we're saying, I trust you, God. I believe that you're the one who can fix this, and I am putting myself in front of you. And we'll see in the coming weeks what happens when we do that. So if you are someone who is hurting, because I want to talk to just two kinds of people, the ones that are hurting or the ones that are near someone who's hurting. And it's not easy. So I say this with a ton of compassion. Face your problems. Face the situation. God sees you in the midst of it anyway, and he loves you. 
and tell him how you really feel. He can handle it. Read the Psalms. And with that strength and courage, God will meet you in it. If you are someone who is hurting, know that God is meet, will meet you in it. And if you are near someone who's hurting, then I would encourage you, and I think we see it in here, to be curious and be generous. The idea to be curious means that you don't actually assume what someone is feeling. You ask why questions. You seek to understand. And when you seek to understand, what you're saying to that person is that you think they matter. And you think what they have to say is valuable. And, and Elkina starts on this great track. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why are you sad? Why are you downhearted? Why won't you eat? I mean, those are really good questions. If he stops, to, you know, listen to the answer. But then he wins the, like, absolutely how not to show empathy award when he's like, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Because number one, it's totally not true. No, you don't mean more to me than 10 sons. Number th- two, did I say number two? Whatever. It's not helpful, B, it's not helpful. Like 10 is the divine perfection. It means like everything is complete. She just wants one. She just wants something to take this disgrace away. Something where she can put her hope in this future, in the society that she lives in that will make sense. And it's also just the reason that he also shouldn't say it is it ends up pushing her away. Sometimes the best thing you can do in this idea of being curious is simply to say, you seem like you're hurting. Do you want to talk to me about it? And the second part of that is be generous. Be generous with your time. Sometimes when people are hurting, the best thing you can do is sit with them and not say anything. Because what you are conveying to them is you're not alone. And when we're hurting, isn't that what we want to feel anyway? You're also being generous by not saying anything with your presence, with your time, and with your judgment. Because you're not saying anything dumb if you're not saying anything. My daddy always told me, you know, better to be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. So sometimes the very best thing to say is actually nothing at all. You're conveying that you're You're generous with your judgment. You're generous with your care. You're generous with who they are as a person. Again, we'll see in the coming weeks how this might resolve, but the reason I felt like it was so important to leave it here is because sometimes in life, we're just left here with a little bit of unfinished feeling. Like the situation you're in isn't better, but that's okay because God still sees you, there's people still around you that love you, and God can do something about it. So if someone around you is experiencing hardship, be curious and be generous. What you will do is you will give them a strength and a courage that God really does see them, that he really does love them, and that he really can do something about it. And my dream is that restoration is a place where people who are hurting, where they feel like they're a little bit broken, where something is going wrong in their life, they can come in and not feel like they have to put a mask on, not feel like they have to pretend that everything's okay, and that the people that are here will give them 
just an amazing abundance of presence, of care, of prayer, and of hope that Jesus really can fix their situation. Because that's why we're here. Jesus is the only one who can change Hannah's situation. And for some of you, for most of us, if we really think about it, he is the only one who can change our situation too. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for stories that, that show the brokenness that people experience. Because as much as I want to just do a rah-rah, 2017 is going to be great, the reality is that myself and others in the room, we're experiencing loss at the same time as we want to be experiencing joy. And God, I pray that you would meet us in that. I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength and the faith to face and, and to take our problems to you. I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to be curious and generous with the people around us who are hurting. And I pray, God, for all of us that we would run to you, Jesus, that we would believe that you are the one who can fix our problems. Because, God, when the world was just going to hell in a handbasket, you sent your son, your first and best, the only one who could do something about it, and you brought yourself to us. And you showed us what it meant to do your will, to love people with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what we did, we just threw everything evil on you. And you took it. And by taking all the sin of the world, Jesus, you actually opened a way that we could find full restoration with you, God. And I pray, God, if we haven't said yes to you, that we would say yes to you today. God, that you would speak in your, in your spirit to the people in this room, the ones that need to hear it most, that Jesus made a way, that I can put my trust in a Savior that we celebrated at Christmas and that lives on through the Spirit, that even in the midst of my pain and my loss, I'll still trust you. I'll believe that you will bring something good and bring something whole out of it because that's what you do. We love you, God.